know, when, when, when I first had that experience, I did everything possible to recreate that experience in an right. effort. Uh, and yeah, and to this day, I've never had an experience as deep as that. And mm. I've, you know, tried all sorts of, you know, plant medicine and you know, right. psychedelics. Nothing has even ever remotely come close. Come close. Oh, that's so interesting. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? If you Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. As always, wonderful to be with you again. Look, I have on the show today the gorgeous <laughs> neuroscientist and spiritual teacher, Dr. Kaushik Ram. Welcome to the show, Kaushik. Yeah, absolute pleasure being here, Karen. Thanks for having me. So Kaushik is in Sydney, down the road from where I am. I think you live in Bondi, don't you? Yeah, that's that's right. I'm literally about 100 metres from the beach. So it's, uh, yeah, one of the most magnificent places. And he's one of our upcoming speakers for the next Higher Self Online Expo, which is happening in July, between the 17th and 18th of July. It's a 24-hour online expo. We're covering all time zones across the world. And there's six hosts this time. Normally there's two, Zane and, and one other. Uh, this time there's six hosts, so two in Australia, myself and David, a couple in Europe, Tanya and Louise and uh, Geraldine and Zane in the States. And we are gathering speakers from across the world to speak about where science meets spirituality. So it should be a fabulous online. It's free to anyone. It's live streamed and it'll also be, you know, you can watch it later, of course, on Facebook and YouTube. But let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Ram. Dr. Kushik Ram is a neuroscientist, author and speaker and brings together over a decade of study into the optimal performance of the body and the brain. Kaushik is on a mission to translate cutting-edge neuroscience into practical techniques that are applicable in real-world personal and professional environments. Dr. Ram's nervous system training program won the TEDx Sydney pitch at the Sydney Australian Opera House in 2018. He has been featured in multi-award-winning documentaries and his precognition method has been applied in award-winning leadership programs. He is the best-selling author of Hidden World, The Inside Story of the Soul. Dr. Ram's career-defining discoveries show how to biologically unlock the intelligence of the heart using the precognition method which teaches how to thrive in an era of rapid change, complexity and ambiguity by taking the guesswork out of the hustle and exhaustive strategies and learning how to work with the precision of the moment. By regulating the rhythms of the heart, we find real solutions to managing stress, 
overwhelm and anxiety instead of relentlessly attempting to calm a racing mind. Dr. Ram believes the heart is the missing link to the brain-body connection. Koshik is on a mission to heighten the perceptivity of the heart to accelerate coincidences which are not a series of unrelated events but an innate ability of the heart to create. And as I said, he's one of our keynote speakers in Australia, Australian keynote speakers for the Higher Self Expo. And you can find uh, Kushik at drkushikram.com. Wow. So sounds like you came from a scientific background. <laughs> and what put you on a spiritual journey? Because most people in the sciences are not thinking about heart and spirituality. What changed for you, Kushik? Um, it's actually the other way around. I really? started off on a spiritual journey and uh, for the most part, I couldn't find the answers that I was looking for. And um, I, I, I was studying biology and, uh, you know, animal behavior and things like that before. That was something that I did out of interest. And uh, after finishing high school, I went on to uni to study that. And after you know uh, doing the undergrad, I uh, happened to have read a book called Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which uh, immediately you know uh, took me beyond what the science uh, was telling me. And so when I started inquiring uh, among scientists, um, they immediately shut me down. And so I, I had to really find a language for myself to be able to communicate what I, I was experiencing. And so this is what led me onto a path of neuroscience. I started to understand, you know, um, for example, like how Tolly would talk about uh, uh, observing your thoughts and I would be inquiring, where do these thoughts even come from? You know, so it was a very, uh, I guess, um, an exploratory journey. But as I dug deeper, I, uh, you know, uh, gained my career in professional, uh, you know, professional neuroscience as well. So um, I did acquire a lot of, I guess, uh, technical knowledge. And, um, you know, I did brain surgery. I, I did, uh, I worked in the neuropsychiatry department. Uh, I worked with neurology. So I have had a very broad uh, coverage of the neuroscience field. Um, but at the same time, what started me on this journey was uh, a spiritual um, uh, inquiry in the first place. So why were you thinking about spirituality? Were your parents spiritual? Were you brought up in a spiritual environment? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, because uh, I, uh, I was uh, raised as a Hindu, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, a uh, a tradition that comes from India and uh, you know understanding the Vedas and the Ramayana and the Bhagavad Gita and all the spiritual texts was just common knowledge uh, so I was basically indoctrinated into it at a very young age my dad is highly spiritual uh, or highly religious I should uh, say um, and so I was in an ashram at the age of eight until 14 uh, so already I, I had a fairly head start into a spiritual uh, understanding, although in my case, 
it was religious rather than spiritual. I understood it religiously. I did all the rituals, the prayers, but I did not have a, I guess, um, an understanding of what I was doing. I was simply doing it because I was told to do it. And so over time, I, uh, I started inquiring. I was like, why are we doing this? So in my teenage years, you know, teenagers rebel against parents. So I, yeah, basically started asking questions. And again, uh, I wasn't really satisfied with the answers I was given. So uh, at that point, I was, because I was unsatisfied, I decided to investigate the natural world to look for answers. I was looking for answers in evolution, uh, you know, Darwinian theories and things like that. And uh, that is what led me onto biology in the first place. But yeah, so the, the understanding really came through when I read The Path Now, which translated uh, the spiritual text I was uh, reading in very plain, easy to understand language. And that basically accelerated my, uh, my understanding quite quickly. Uh, because I already had that background knowledge, I just didn't know or understand it in uh, uh, yeah, very general terms. So what do you think the difference is between religion and spirituality? Like you said that your parents had a, a religious background, not a spirituality, because a lot of religious people would say, this is spirituality. And a lot of spiritual people would say, no, it's not, that's religion. <laughs> what's, what's your take on that question? Yeah, so I guess um, religion, uh, in my case, is something I was born into. Uh, I didn't find it on my own accord. Uh, and religion as a structure, uh, I guess, uh, comes from, uh, you know, some form of worship. Uh, and this is, uh, I'm completely speaking on my own perspective here. So uh, worshipping, uh, a deity or a god figure or something along those lines. And I could not really understand why I was worshipping a statue or a, you know, a picture. Uh, like there, there's no sort of feedback that is happening there. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it just felt very odd to me. But, you know, growing up in a culture where everyone's doing that, uh, and if you don't do that, people look at you very strange. So I was going, but what we are doing is strange, not the other way around. So yeah, it, that, that caused a lot of, I guess, internal conflict. And um, that's where, you know, that, that is what set me off on this journey. I was like, I don't understand. And no matter who I ask, they give me the same answers rather than thinking for themselves. So spirituality, uh, in my view, is self-discovery. And so you question, you inquire, and then you assimilate or you gather practices that actually uh, has some form of internal alignment with you. Um, you might choose meditation because it calms the mind, but if you... Uh, grew up with say ADHD, meditation is very hard to do, but something like ecstatic dance might be easier. And that is your meditation. So depending on 
and then your own personal, I guess, preferences, uh, you go out and you develop your own sense of spirituality rather than inheriting it from a tradition, culture, your parents. So that's, I guess, my distinction. Oh, beautifully said. Spirituality is, um, what did you say? Self-inquiry. What did you call it? Spirituality is... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I do. I, like, I do speak in the moment, so I do. <laughs> so now you can't remember, I know. But no, beautiful. It, it is. It's about self-discovery. I think you said self-inquiry, self-discovery. Yeah, learning about the self. Whereas religion tends to teach you about a whole lot of saints or sages or god, god gurus or gods or, depending on which religion you're um, you're looking at. But uh, interesting. So, did you ever find out? why people pray to statues um no not really <laughs> and to be honest uh, i i gave up looking for that uh, that answer as well because as my inquiries uh became more profound uh those minor sort of you know things that i didn't quite understand at the age of you know eight nine ten uh uh, those were trivial questions. I don't think that's a trivial question at all. I think that's a I think that's a really pertinent question because I would say billions of people do. They pray to statues, whether it's a statue of Jesus or Ganesha or Krishna or Buddha uh, or whatever. You know, they do. And um, and our homeware shops are full of them, and religious shops are full of them. Like they're they're full of them. Uh, look, I, I spent some time in India and there was a lot of praying to statues to the point where I remember we were, we went to a temple and we paid to go into this room that was full of these giant statues. Like the statues were almost bigger than the room, but it was interesting to us. And I remember we paid our money and we had to go through a, um, what do you call it, where it, it scans your body for weapons or metal, whatever that's called. Yeah. And this, this beautiful little Indian family, I say little because I'm tall, they were shorter than me, just pushed us out of the way to get through this doorway to get in there to see these, you know, like I was just, I remember being shocked at how enthusiastic they were to get into that room to see these statues. We were there as a tourist. Uh, I, you know, I think it's a really good question and I've asked it, I've, I've asked it many times, like why, why do people, what do they think that they're getting from this I think a scientific mind is a curious mind, right? So you, you don't take things at face value, you say, but why are we doing this? What's the point? Yeah, yeah. And that uh, what's the point is something I've asked so often <laughs> and I continue to ask. And I mean, you, you raise a very uh, important point there as well. Like there's so much, I guess, um, superstition in this cultures as well. And that is another form of, Fear that keeps the culture together. Uh, and uh, when I was growing up, there were so many superstitions around what happens if you don't do the ritual, or superstitions around ghosts and entities and, you know, the invisible, basically. So that in itself creates a fear of the unknown. And uh, spirituality is all about surrendering to the unknown. So uh, you know, I, I do make that distinction as well. Well, it's interesting that you call it superstition because even inside the spiritual community, there's a lot of people 
um, fearful of the unknown. So in, in my community and, and where we talk, you know, they're worried about negative entities attaching to them or attacking them or sucking their energy dry. And to tell you the truth, as someone who's very psychic and aware of the unknown and can, and, you know, swims inside these unseen realms, it's not that it's not true because this is possible that it can happen. Even people that are drug addicted, alcoholics, there can be spirits, ghosts, whatever you want to call them, that um, are still very attached to their physical lives. And they're trying to get a sensation of like alcohol or being drunk by attaching to someone who drinks a lot. And then that desire, you know, spurs on that other person's desire to keep drinking. And this is a very real possibility. I, I don't know if you call it superstition, but it is the fear of it, I think, that we need to deal with. It's like what you said is the fear of the unseen seems to be what you're calling superstition or not helpful in our lives. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I guess well, what I call superstition is belief systems that have been passed on generation after generation about a story. Uh, or I, uh, you know, the, like when I was growing up, there was a tree that was called the ghost tree. And yeah. there was always, you know, children uh, frightened about it because there were stories going around why, you know, bad things happen when you go around the tree. So it could be a legitimate thing. Um, you know, there could be energies around there, which, you know, we have no idea about, uh, but uh, whether it was just uh, local hearsay or whether it was something actual, as a kid, uh, we sort of created stories around that and we created ghost stories and with something, you know, that we'd sit around a fire and tell each other and scare each other about. So yeah. it was, I guess, superstition rather than actually feeling the energy around the tree, was it pure or was it, you know, uh, a bit darker? Uh, that is not something that I had developed at that point or in none of the kids I was around had developed at that point. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting one. Mm. So you also asked the question, where do thoughts come from? So where do you think thoughts come from? <laughs> I've, Did you find um, the answer? That's what I'm saying. Did you find yeah, it? Yeah, I've, uh, you know, thought about this a lot. Um, and to this day, even as a neuroscientist, I do not have the answer to that. Um, I might have ideas, but uh, I don't uh, find any of them. I can entertain those ideas, but like I, I don't really know where thought comes from. Uh, of course, there's a chemical reaction that happens, you know, between synapses and different brain regions communicate with each other and can see this uh, either through an EEG scan or a functional MRI. And we see how different brain, brain areas interact with each other. And we can go microscopic as well. We can look at the minute detail, the chemical exchange that happens. But how is that then fabricated into thought? no idea i know right and this is such a great question because like you i studied science i start as a naturopath and that was the eternal question too when we're studying physiology and neuroscience you know we can see the effects of thought 
but we can't actually measure or see or find where the thought arises, where it comes from. But the rishis and the gurus would say that rather than us thinking we're being thought, what do you say about that? Mm. Um, I think what, and uh, again, I, I, I don't know what rishis or gurus and you know, sages think, but um, yeah, there is a very uh, different feel to actually be. And um, a lot of time, from my perspective, the mind tends to wander and it's a very natural thing for the mind to do. Uh, in neuroscience, we call this the default mode network, which is the network that um, is triggered uh, when the mind is idle. And so a lot of times the, the idle mind may travel into the past uh, and reminisce on moments that we hold dear or it could project into the future and you know bring our dreams to life which haven't yet occurred and so our mind does wonder uh, in this sort of past future spectrum uh, what's interesting is that if it um, is chronically trapped in in the past then we see depressive symptoms and if it's chronically trapped in the future we see anxiety symptoms so Basically, what I'm saying is the, the mind can time travel, but the body cannot do that. And so it creates a bit of a time anomaly. Uh, and what being or, or being present is, is neutralizing the time anomaly. So the mind is absorbed by the body. It's absorbed by this moment. So it's not wandering anymore. It's been here. It's been present. And it's simply being Yes, yes, but the mind can wander into the past and into the future in a positive way. Like you can be really excited about a project that you're creating and how it's going to unfold or um, be excited about doing an experiment and finding the solution, you know, and that's all projection into the future. Or you can reminisce about old times and when you're a kid and how much fun that was and or when you, maybe you've lost someone at the time when they were physically on earth and you were talking with them or hugging them and how great that was. So the mind doesn't necessarily have to be in stress or anxiety going back and forward in time. It just depends on the quality of the thought, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so uh, you've probably heard this saying uh, many times before that the mind is a useful servant but a dangerous master. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, it, it's very obvious that the mind's attention uh, has to be on something. And uh, the moment it's distracted uh, beyond, uh, I guess, our, uh, our current perception, then it starts to get caught up in things which then becomes self-serving. So, and that, that's basically the origins of the ego. And when and for myself this is uh, what i often do is i place the mind's attention on the heart and so as i mentioned before the mind is a uh, dangerous master but a useful servant so when it's serving the heart then doesn't matter what thoughts arise it is uh, very self-replenishing it's self-regenerative 
uh, also the chemical composition of the body changes in response to that. Mm-hmm. So um, because our thoughts are more loving, filled with compassion, uh, and that creates, a, I guess, a different uh, layer of understanding. Mm-hmm. You can look at a problem, for example, that needs to be solved, and you can be very strategic with the mind, which is sometimes exhausting. Mm-hmm. And look at it at the level of, you know, solving this problem for someone else. And in a, in a greater state, you can even look at it very compassionately. And that has its own intelligence. So it uh, doesn't matter what the mind's attention is on, as long as it's uh, coming from this state of love, uh, then it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Where you are in time and space in the past, in the present, or in the future, as long as you're in the heart. So, Dr. Ram, would you say that there is a few levels of mind? Um, That that is a very uh, interesting question, Uh, levels of the mind. um, Because we have a program sort of conditioned response that's like the subconscious programming that... Is conscious, like it, it's conscious, but we can be unconscious of it. Do, do you know what I mean? Like we can be saying things that's just coming from a programmed response and we're not really conscious of what we're saying unless we stop and say, wait, is that something I really believe? Like your parents conditioning you into what you should think or society conditioning you or your school systems, um, you know, it can come from anywhere, the media. Uh, and so there's a conscious level, subconscious, superconscious level of mind. Yeah, I, uh, I've looked at this at a lot of different angles. And uh, I guess the most coherent way that I've um, uh, seen so far uh, actually is a eight level information processing paradigm. Eight. Eight levels. Mm-hmm. And uh, levels one to four actually are within the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in my work, I often talk about the heart being the first perception of reality because the heart responds before any other organ mm-hmm. of the body responds. And so once the rhythms of the heart change, all the auto- autonomic functions of the body changes as well. How we uh, regulate you know, blood pressure or our metabolic function, everything changes. And so the body responds first, you know, your pupils will dilate or you might have sweaty palms. All these are physiological responses. Um, And at levels five and six, this is uh, subconscious processing of that information. So what the senses have gathered, what the body is feeling has finally entered our subconscious. And, the subconscious then decides what is important. And uh, it bases this primarily on the activation of the fight or flight response. So if fear is triggered, that immediately becomes more important than any other information uh, that might be mundane. And so once the, uh, you know, the, the subconscious has decided that, and it could be you know, emotionally related fear, or it, you know, it could be fear with time, which is anxiety, for example. So once the subconscious has allocated that, 
then it reaches our conscious perception and then we perceive reality based on all these processes that has occurred prior. So by the time inflammation reaches our conscious perception, 200 milliseconds have passed. And so in a, in a way, uh, the mind is 200 milliseconds behind the present moment while the heart is responding moment to moment. Beautiful, beautiful. So how does that help us in our daily lives just to, to, to remember to bring everything back into the heart? Yeah, absolutely. So if we just simply think about all the choices we make in a day, mm-hmm. you know, um, depending on whether our heart accelerates or whether it decelerates, uh, it changes our decision-making process. So, for example, uh, you know, it could be, it's very obvious in, for example, stock, stock traders, they, they buy and sell at such a high rate and the fear and reward pathways of the brain are so intimately connected uh, in stock traders. And so the decisions they make, if the heart rate accelerates, emotion takes over, they're likely to make a decision out of panic uh, out of you know hesitation and things like that. But when your heart rate slows down, the same decision could be there, but you have all the time in the world to consider all possibilities, think about it and make your decision based on your best knowledge at that time. And so, uh, yeah, decision-making is one. Uh, food choices, for example, um, if my body is in fight or flight, I am more likely to eat food that is providing me immediate energy. So quick snacks, uh, carbs, all that kind of stuff, uh, which then goes into the body as a quick fix. If I'm calm and relaxed, then I can go, hey, I don't need food immediately. Instead, I can plan my diet and I can go, okay, this is what I'll have for lunch. Uh, this is how many calories I've had. So uh, during dinner, I'll reduce the amount of calories to this much. And, you know, you can think very objectively. So the heart, you know, when, when I talk about it in practical sense, it really dictates all the subtle choices that we make, even if it's without our own awareness. So the body is deciding this all the time. And based on whether we are going for a quick fix, uh, an immediate reward, or are we going for long-term fulfillment? This is really the, you know, the, the, the decision-making process that goes moment to moment. So how far down the spiritual rabbit hole did your scientific mind allow you to go when you were looking into spirituality? (laughs) Did you start thinking about life after death, where we come from, who we are as soul, who we are as spirit, how that dovetails with the physical form, uh, multidimensional, you know, selves, where are we when we're not physically focused, we're in other dimensions, other planets, other realities, past lives, future lives, Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll give you, I guess, what comes to mind is a sample. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I used to run, you know, uh, I guess healing sessions uh, when I was writing my book. And these were really restoring the nervous system into um, a state of harmony. And often when that happens, the person, usually they, they, they go very exhausted because they haven't given the opportunity of the body to do that. They've always been go, 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 go. And uh, in one case, I was um, having breakfast at a resort. I, I, I wrote my book in Thailand. And um, as usual, there were other tourists there. And across my table, there was a, um, a politician from London sitting there. And uh, we both looked at each other. We were both having our breakfast by ourselves. So he came and joined me on my table. And I started describing, you know, some of the things that um, I do. And uh, after about five minutes, he just stopped me and said, that sounds very vague, you know? And so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll show you. And so uh, without, you know, any, any concern, uh, I arranged a time to do the session with him. And his story, uh, just to backtrack a little, was that he'd been coming to this island for four years. And he was coming because um, he had very severe neck pain. And uh, there was this beautiful uh, healer on the island. She did massage. Her name was May. Uh, some said May is like 60 years old, but she could have been 80. We don't know. Uh, she was just brilliant at what she did. And uh, so uh, this politician kept coming back to her ear after ear to get treatment on his neck. And uh, so when it came to doing the session with me, uh, I had no idea that any of this uh, was going on. When I started the session, uh, I, uh, I got him to calm down, relax, close his eyes. And it was quite intuitive. And in that moment, um, the idea came to do a past life regression on him. And I don't often do past life regressions. I know how to do them. But uh, in this moment, that felt like the exact right thing to do. And so I took him into the regression. And within seconds, I had this feeling of taking him out straight away. And so within like 10 seconds, he was out. And in that moment, he, he slowly opened his eyes. He didn't look at me. He just got up took a moment, took a breath, and then just walked off. And, uh, you know, I didn't see him for the rest of the day. And then the next day, uh, I'm walking down to the resort to have breakfast. And he's there, he's got, you know, two, you know, a, a Turkish girlfriend and a German girlfriend. And he's like, very excited. And uh, he sees me coming and everyone's pointing at me. It's like that guy, that guy. And I don't know what's going on. So when I arrive, he takes me aside and said, do you know what happened? And uh, so he told me the story where uh, he felt quite weird going into, you know, the regression. But uh, when he fell into that trance, uh, he saw himself open his eyes in the regression. And he was standing on this stage. And there were hundreds of people looking at him. And in that moment, he realized he was about to be hung. And 
in that moment, he appeared as his current self, looked into the eyes of his former self and said, I forgive you. And in that moment, I had pulled him out. And the crazy thing is, all his neck pain simply disappeared. And to this day, he doesn't have that neck pain. And the, the funny thing for me is that um, whether or not this is true, I don't know. Uh, whether past life regressions work or not, I don't know. Uh, in that moment, that felt like the right thing to do. Uh, and so that is where I sit with, you know, uh, these experiences um, and they simply are for me experiences uh, I don't go any further than you know hey this is a new technique that I've developed and I you know want everyone to know about it it heals the world no I it, it was simply true in that moment and... yeah so this goes back to the question where is thought coming from because there is a a thought or a fear that's locked in his body that is expressing as pain and he experienced it as a fear from a past life or, or actually when you said he this current him forgave his older self or other self there was unresolved forgiveness unresolved resentment there was unresolved something there that was expressing as pain. So there was thought that was coming from another time and space. So it's interesting, isn't it? Where does thought come from? It wasn't coming from his current life. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, the thing is, I could invent explanations about this, but in all honesty, I, I don't actually know. So uh, beyond that moment, which felt true, uh, you know, I, I could come up with so many reasons, but it's exhausting uh, of why this could have happened or not happened. But for me, I, I leave some things to mystery. And uh, that's how I find um, a great value, actually, because I'm always fascinated by wonder. And every moment, therefore, is different for me. Uh, I don't take that same experience and try to apply it with someone else because right. it might not be true for them yeah so uh yeah it's it's one of the things that i do encourage is like um experiences are very personal and it can't directly be translated to someone else's experience yeah so have you had any experiences like that yourself where you've transcended this time and space and contacted other selves or dimensions? Um, I, I have had an experience. Uh, I have had a near-death experience. Oh, please tell us about yeah. that. What happened? So it's a very, I guess, long story, but uh, I'll give you a very short version of it. When I was uh, around 22 years old, I was... Um, working as a photonics engineer and uh, when it came to the Christmas break I didn't know what to do I had just arrived in Australia at that point and uh, so I took a holiday uh, which was the the cheapest flight out of Australia and that was to Bali 
And when I arrived in Bali, it was very hectic and lots of chaos. And you know, I was like, I don't like this. So I started island hopping all the way east, went through Lambok and Flores and through Komodo Island. And eventually I ended up in the uh, lowlands of uh, Irian Jaya, which is the west side of Papua New Guinea. And then I looked up into the clouds, into the mountains, and I was like, how do you, how do you get up there? And so uh, eventually I found that the only way to get up was through a military aircraft. And so I surrendered my passport to the Papua New Guinea military, and they threw me on this aircraft, no doors. It was just a pretty battered old air, airplane. And uh, we flew over the highlands and there's no roads up there because when they tried building the roads, the mountains were so steep that it kept, you know, washing away. So by the time they finished at the end, half of the road that they began with had already slid down. So we flew over these very enchanting mountains. It's so high, you'd expect it to be snow-capped, but it's not, it's, you know, tropical. And we landed in this valley and I was given instructions to um, go into the marketplace and I'll find uh, a man there who spoke English. And that was the only instructions. The, the military, military disappeared into the grasslands and I couldn't see them anymore. And so I walked towards this path and there I, I found this very battered old hut and I went inside this hut and sure enough, there was a guy who spoke English. He was a middle-aged man in his fifties, quite depressed, uh, but he was my tour guide. And uh, we went through all these, you know, unique areas, underground caves, uh, suspended bridges, and, you know, just through the deep forest of Papua New Guinea, uh, met with so many different tribes. And one night I, uh, I was um, asked to stay in this hut, which was built by the missionaries, which was back in the 1800s. And when I got in there, the hut actually felt terrifying. Uh, I, and as I mentioned, when I was growing up, there was a lot of superstition and I had not quite understood uh, where those superstitions came from. I had no concept of what energy feels like, what is good energy, what's bad energy. But when I walked into this hut um, with my very basic you know, understanding, uh, I felt even terrified to breathe that air. Uh, there could have been you know, massacres that have happened within that hut. Uh, I didn't know, but it it was the most terrifying place that I've ever stepped foot in. And that night when I slept, um, I became incredibly sick. Whether it was entities, ghosts, I don't know. But all I knew was I might not make it alive uh, from this hut. And then because I was in so much pain, so much point, pain to the point where I felt like my head was about to split open. Um, I decided to do the only thing that I knew to relieve pain at that point, which was meditation. And so I descended deep into my body uh, and to counteract that pain, 
the meditative state had to be even deeper than what I felt physically. So at a certain point, my body, this physical form uh, disappeared and only consciousness remained. And that wasn't the end of it. That was only the beginning. So when the physical form disappeared, uh, so did the pain because it was no longer, you know, the pain was in the physical form. So I felt no pain, but I kept going deeper. And at a certain point, time disappeared as well. So I could experience everything simultaneously from, you know, the evolution of dinosaurs to the extinction of man from the particles, you know, uh, moving around a, uh, a nucleus to galaxies colliding against each other and everything moving at light speed all at once. And so because time had disappeared, the mind had abandoned that journey entirely. And what remained was just this eternal nothing. And then when you know, I came back into consciousness, anything that the mind could think of, um, this feeling of consciousness had already come up with the answer. So it was an all-knowing state. And I don't know how long I was in it, but when I came out of it, um, the first thing that uh, occurred to me was I'm human and the entire history of hum humanity occurred to me all at once. And I was like, oh my God, like what are we doing on this planet? And it's taken me about five years to integrate back into society after that experience. So that was one of the catalysts for me uh, studying neuroscience and as I said like it was the spiritual experience that came before my interest in neuroscience so once I've had that experience neuroscience was only a language to translate that into meaningful sentences so that people don't think I'm crazy yeah um, rather than you know yelling from the tops of mountains going I've had this experience but yeah. without a language to talk about it wow oh wow when you said that the spiritual spirit experience came first i thought it was the experience of the religion from your parents i didn't realize it was the the near-death experience or the out-of-body experience or the inner body experience i don't know wherever you were because uh you didn't perceive the body but you didn't sound like your consciousness traveled it sounds like it was all happening in the eternal here and now yeah yeah, so I didn't track, like, I can't, to this day, you know, when, when I first had that experience, I did everything possible to recreate that experience. In right. Uh, and, yeah, and to this day, I've never had an experience as deep as that. And mm. I've, you know, tried all sorts of, you know, plant medicine and, you know. Right psychedelics nothing has even ever remotely come close come close oh that's so interesting i was listening to a woman yesterday day before anyway this week sometime talking about her near-death experience and she said that she did come close to the replication of the feeling of the experience 
through meditation. But now what happened? She connected, but she was connecting with another soul, another person. Yeah, yeah, I was just, because I had actually never heard anyone having had many near-death experiences on the show say that they've ever been able to replicate that sensation, that feeling of expansiveness and bliss and all-knowing and unconditional love uh, while they're back in the body. <laughs> it's a challenge. We can, yeah. It's a challenge we can take, right? Yeah. So uh, I suppose you've done a lot of meditation trying to get back there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, meditation was something that I invested in quite a bit at a very young age. And meditation is what led me there. Mm -hmm. But once I've had that experience, meditation was not able to lead me back there. Right, yeah. So then it became, how do I, like the, the thing is that state has never left me. Mm -hmm. And so the, what I have done is that the mind, once it experienced something far greater than itself, stepped out of the way mm -hmm. and surrendered to that, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And so my mind does not conflict with that state anymore. It doesn't question it. There is no doubt. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I've researched up to this point is bring the mind back into this moment. So, for example, for many years, I, I, I haven't meditated. Uh, I don't need meditation because I have reverse engineered my way back into that state uh, using my own biology. Mm -hmm. And so why would I meditate when I'm constantly in that state anyway? Mm -hmm. and so when you were having this experience, you said that, you started meditating because you felt so ill. So you felt this energy in this cabin that you're in and, and you perceived it as like massacre type energy, but awful energy, whatever you're feeling. Did you have a sense of exactly what you were perceiving when you were in that expanded consciousness state? Did you get more of an insight into what was happening to you? No. So the, I sensed a very terrible energy in that cabin mm -hmm. uh, and that whether that created the pain or had I eaten something that was you know, contaminated, I don't know. But what I do know is in that cabin, I was in enormous amounts of pain, mm -hmm. so much pain that at that point I had written a letter to my mom and dad saying, you know, I'm not going to make it. Wow. I'm sorry for I stupid and adventurous you know right so when you had the expanded experience and you came back into waking consciousness the pain had gone yeah completely right yeah so once i had um i guess gone beyond form Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, I guess can be associated with the body and directionality. When I was in that state, there was no up, down, left, right. There was no form, so there was no orientation either. Uh, there was no time, so there was no mind. I've had a, one of my favourite teachers on the show, probably about half a dozen times, Michael Tamora, spiritual teacher, and he talks about, he's had five near-death experiences <laughs> 
<laughs> I kept saying, you can't to kill, Michael. Anyway, <laughs> he talks about pain is actually not in the physical body, which is something that I, I suspect the doctor or neuroscience would argue with. But he says it's in the etheric realm. He said that's why an amputee can actually feel limb pain when the limb is not there. They can still experience the limb pain even when it's been amputated. Um, it's, it's fascinating. It's like, wow, really? Okay, that's interesting. So we might look at it as electrical firings of the neurons creating pain, but he said that, um, that it actually lives in the, in the sort of energy section of the body, which is the etheric, which is a very close, it's like the physical body, the etheric body, astral bodies, and there's many other bodies. Yeah. What do you say about that? Mm. Yeah, the, the phantom limb phenomena has been quite well documented in mm -hmm. science. So while uh, the limb might not be there, uh, the somatic map is still present in the brain. And so if there's feeling associated to uh, a limb that is not there, it's still felt by the brain but there is no physical structure present. Yeah, so, so you get back to the brain. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah that's the, and uh, in terms of, you know, the various different bodies, um, that is something that uh, I read a lot about uh, in my early 20s. Uh, I was exploring, you know, uh, because I had just had that experience, mm -hmm. I was exploring all sorts of explanations and uh, eventually, yeah, I simply let it all go. Uh, I don't need an explanation um, for what I already am, basically. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, there are things that, you know, we can explain neurologically. There are things that, you know, science falls very short in explaining. And uh, yeah, yeah, there, there might be spiritual explanations, uh, which uh, I, I keep a very open mind to. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, I, I do concede that, uh, you know, we don't all have the answers. You know, I believe, so the, the expo that um, you're talking at, that I'm hosting, co-hosting, is about where science speech meet spirituality and i really believe that everything can be explained scientifically uh, that all spiritual or um, unexplainable experiences can we just haven't reached the level of science that can explain it yet i believe on earth you know even with our fabulous neuroscientists and, and quantum physicists and i think we're just starting to like the nasim haramains and I think we're starting to, uh, but um, I do believe that the ETs, because I do talk to chat to ETs, much to my daughter saying, shut up, mum, stop talking about the aliens. <laughs> I do believe that their consciousness does have an understanding of how the unified field works, you know, how consciousness works from uh, a level of, of, of understanding, of scientific understanding. And I think that um, it's an exciting journey that we're traveling into that into that understanding into that world where science meets spirituality and we have a 
cognitive understanding of the mysteries of life, of the of what we call miracles and mysteries. Like a hundred years ago, an iPhone was a complete magic. Was complete magic. So what's magic today is science tomorrow. What do you think about that, Kushik? Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I do see uh, what you mean there, and. Yeah, science is constantly evolving as our imagination unfolds. Um, but I guess my uh, perspective comes from uh, something that uh, Paulo Coelho has written, which, uh, you know, if you explain all the mysteries, life won't be fun anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of mysteries to explain. And um, as we're evolving as a human race, it's going to be probably thousands of years until we explain all of them. We're just starting to explain some of them, you know, in our, in our universities and our learned schools, I think that they think they have all the answers. I think we're just at the precipice of even hoping to get some of the answers actually. So there are yeah. many mysteries that will remain unexplained for years to come, for decades, for maybe hundreds, even thousands of years to come. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah, especially when you get in the realm of, psychic awareness you know you have access to an infinite intelligence that um, can can illuminate the mind can illuminate the heart and the mind into some of the mysteries of life trying to explain it with english is not easy <laughs> trying to bring that information into language into the way that we present language is almost impossible some people try and paint you know their near-death experiences and what they experienced and um, yeah, I, I had a, an amazing experience probably in my late 30s. Uh, I was reading some books and uh, this man had this out-of-body experience back in at the end of World War II. He was living in India, actually, and his br brother had been shot down in the war and um, a physical man turned up his, at his door and said that he was going to take him to meet his brother and he'd, he was literally holding the telegram and telling him that his brother had been killed and he came back that night in an astral form and took him on these out-of-body experiences and showed him these many realms astral realms one of which was where his dead brother was and I remember reading that book and thinking oh I want to do that like I so want to do that and I didn't for like ever I just every night I would have that intention when I went to sleep that I would have an experience like that and I didn't and then one night I did and it's a much longer story that I'm going to go into but as I was coming back into my body from this out-of-body experience, I had the uh, ability to see life as it is without looking through the physical eyes. Like everything was translucent and transparent. I was sort of hovering in and out of my body simultaneously. I can't even explain it. And I could see through all the walls in my house. I could see through, I could see everything was see-through. It was like transparent and translucent and I could see my young daughter who was about eight or nine at the time waking up to come and to wake my body up realizing that my consciousness was being called back to my body you know moments before my young daughter was about to wake me up and it was just amazing and like you Kushik, I'm not comparing my experience but I have never had an experience like that ever again <laughs> like ever been able to replicate that ever again it doesn't matter how much i meditate so it's interesting that we're given these experiences once maybe only once in our lifetime 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, in fact. And um, for me, uh, because I've had a uh, uh, couple of these experiences, um, and I know that the mind falls short in its explanations. So instead of finding answers, I simply fell in love with the questions. Uh-huh. And uh, that's been you know, one of the greatest gifts because I'm constantly in a state of wonder, uh-huh. you know, like new uh, enriching experience arrive rather than me hunting from an experience I've already had. Right. So, um, yeah. It's a- so what do you believe, like you, I'm in a state of wonder. I think that that state of wonder keeps life engaging you know, especially when you get to, I don't know if it's age or what it is, but what is in life doesn't engage me as much as what's possible. To me, the possibility of human consciousness evolution is just totally exciting. Um, So what do you think is the potential of humans as we evolve through science and spirituality? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do um, cover this in my book, Hidden World. So uh, the whole purpose of that book has been to explore the evolution of humankind. Mm-hmm. And um, as we go through, you know, the, the very fundamental scaffolding of, the, you know, of our psychology, which has, as we discussed very early on, uh, has been inherited, uh, whether it's been inherited through our lineage, through our DNA. Um, it, it's a very interesting question in itself. Um, for my PhD, I actually looked at the uh, genetic composition of thought. So uh, certain brain regions are wired uh, in a very characteristic way, and that shapes the way we think. Uh, if it it was wired some other way, we will have a very different way of thinking. So even genetically, the brain is wired to see, perceive, think in a very particular way. And um, once we sort of uh, unfold all of that and we realize thought is something that, you know, we can play with rather than be consumed by then we might even lose interest in, you know, what, what's possible through thought because there might be something beyond it. And that's where it has really fascinated me, what's beyond the mind. And uh, for me, I've, in my various experiences, I've found that the mind can be very deceiving. Uh, it can even deceive us in manipulate us into doing certain things but when we are coming from the heart it is a very genuine expression and there's no manipulation there and I'm not talking about um, the heart in a romantic sense which is you know all the fantasies that we have been brought up with the fairy tales and all that now I'm talking about the heart in a very biological perspective uh, as the first perception of reality And so then because the body is the only place that we can actually feel feel safe, feel secure and feel at home, 
And once the mind finds that sense within ourselves, then it's not trying to escape anymore. So when it comes to fight or flight, the mind is either trying to fight against this moment or escape it. And, you know, we see escapism in so many different ways, whether it be, you know, uh, trying to avoid a conversation or going on, a, you know, the holiday that you, that you so badly need. There's so many ways that the mind is trying to escape instead of dwelling in reality and dealing with what's here and right now. So for me, the possibilities exist literally in front of you and that's why my book is called hidden world it's the magic that is hidden in plain sight <laughs> the magic that's hidden in plain sight oh i love that beautiful yes escapism busyness escapism working too hard eating drinking alcohol smoking escapism i think most of us are escaping this moment in pretty much everything we do thinking can be escapism rather than just being present. Oh, beautiful. So your talk at the expo will be neuroscience and the heart. So you're going to go into that a bit more during the expo, which will be fascinating. Well, it's been a fascinating journey with you, Kushik, today. <laughs> I loved hearing about your near-death experience. That was just amazing. That was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us on the show. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, the, I guess the full details of the story is in my book as well. It's not something that I share lightly. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've um, been quite reluctant in sharing that experience. So it's... Well, it's interesting. I, you know, as I said, I've been showcasing new old teachers for over 20 years and many of whom have had uh, spiritually transformative or near-death experiences. And when they come back from these experiences, nobody wants to listen to them. So it's interesting that in order to find a way in which to communicate it, you delved into science. I just thought, I think that's perfect. Because I've had many scientists on the show that once they had an near-death experience sort of left science behind and just delved straight into talking about spirituality. And many They were atheists and they're really science sort of orientated and so it's, it's so fascinating, Kushik, that your story has been the other way around. <laughs> it's, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, it's one of the things where you do learn from the, you know, let's say you stand on the shoulders of that giants. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen um, people fall into traps as well, uh, where they have taken a metaphysical approach to explaining and then been, uh, you know, completely dismissed by masses. So I've been. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I get that. You know, in the in the mainstream world, yeah, they don't really want to talk too much about out of body experiences or near death experience of talking to dead people or talking to ETs or whatever. You know, spiritually transformative. They they don't. They they want the science. Yeah. So they they do dismiss it. But I've been inside this. Um, consciousness expanding arena some would call it woo woo all my life having never really delved into that mainstream apart from studying as a naturopath when I was younger 
Um, I just didn't find the answers I was looking for inside science. So I kept looking and I found them inside spirituality and consciousness. So um, I just see this ground swelling of people coming into this conversation. And it's at that point where there are millions upon millions upon millions of people talking about their near-death experiences and, you know, their psychic abilities that you, that, that the world ceases to ignore it as woo-woo or crazy. Yeah. So. Yes, uh, that is, you know, uh, a beautiful world to live. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you again for being on the show. My pleasure, Karen. Thanks for having me. What a fascinating conversation with Dr. Kaushik Ram. How fascinating, how interesting that he went into science after a spiritually transformative experience. Uh, that's the first time I've spoken with someone that did that. Normally it's the scientists that have these spiritually transformative experience that um, really delve into spirituality. What's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> Where do I go when I die? What's consciousness about? Uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah, we had a few more chats after I turned off the recording. I was sharing some stories with him that I have shared many times on the show. So I spared you from sharing them on the show. If you want to watch my shows, I was sharing miraculous healings that I've seen, uh, a ports that is happening. I was just, we were just talking about um, possibility, human potential and possibility. And um, yes, where we can go when we have more of a understanding and um a grasp, a grip on who we are as consciousness, as consciousness connected through the heart, connected to God, if you like, or source energy, who we are as source energy and what's possible. Hmm. He has a bit more of a scientific spin on it than I do. And, um, yeah, I think science can kind of limit us if, uh, if we think that what we know through science is 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 the is the ultimate truth you know like um there's a lot of caution in Kaushik he was saying that there's a lot of gurus that sort of pretend to manifest things that are charlatans and people that speak to dead people that are also charlatans so he's he's quite cautious of uh delving too much into the realms of the unseen because if it's unseen then how do you prove it <laughs> you know there needs to be some proof but uh, yeah, his, his work is beautiful. He does beautiful work. He works with a lot of people. He works with a lot of, you know, business people and personally and companies. And he's actually a bit of a real deal here in Australia. He's done a lot of TED Talks and just like his bio, he's won awards. So he's one of those people really straddling the world of spirituality and science in a way that's very digestible to the mainstream. I'm not so digestible to the mainstream. <laughs> I'm too woo-woo, but times will change. There will be a time when I'm no longer in the body where all that I've talked about on the shows will just be completely normal mainstream conversation. I don't know if that'll happen in my lifetime, but it's getting there. Like I said to Kaushik, it's um, the groundswell of people that are awakening and having this conversation about all things spiritual and consciousness and out of body and psychic and uh, channeling and it's just huge it's exponential I've been doing this for 30 years well probably all my life really but but aware in a deliberate aware and I've seen exponential growth in the amount of people having these conversations as I look for speakers for the expo uh, I, I was given the task of finding Australians New Zealanders Asians sort of that Australasian we call it 
um, I, I speak to a lot of Americans. If you watch my show, you'll see that I speak to a lot of Americans, people all over the world, but a lot of Americans. It's been interesting for me to look for Australians who have this conversation that I do, because uh, I find a lot of Americans do, but not as many Australians. So it's been a really great exercise for me to, to seek out um, Australians, Australasians, New Zealanders uh, who are straddling both worlds, science and spirituality, consciousness and spirituality and science. Anyway, it's been, it's been a wonderful ride. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kaushik. I thought his near-death experience sounded amazing. He said to me that he used to be such a curious, he used to have such a curious mind and now he, he doesn't really ask the questions anymore. He sort of more rests in the moment, more the Eckhart Tolle, you know, being present turning up in presence and resting in the moment and not questioning too many things. But I think that questioning is exciting. It's a good thing. Question everything, but don't feel attached to the outcome. Just let the questions sit where they may and the answers will turn up either as an experience or as a podcast show or a book or a conversation yeah, let the answers arise. Let the answers arise in your life rather than making them happen. Because reading, as you know, or listening to any of this information doesn't really give you an experience of really knowing it. The experience does. So like his out-of-body near-death experience gave him that knowing of uh, the expansion of consciousness outside of anything he could have read in a book or listen to on a podcast yeah so the questions summon the energy that comes to meet it i was telling him about an apport uh, marcus when we were having the ions meetings in sydney that stopped COVID stopped all that uh, but he's one of the guys that comes to the meetings is a friend on facebook and he's quite active in some of the near-death experience groups but he has only ever shared his story in um katrina machado's book uh, one of her books uh, and he, he hasn't come on my show yet I've been asking him for years but anyway he has the experience of things just manifesting out of thin air they're called apports pieces of jewelry crystals and when I was at one of the meetings he was showing me some photographs of uh, some of the things that have, have just turned up crystals and jewelry and the like and I was thinking oh I want that to happen to me and just as I had that thought <laughs> This crystal dropped out of nowhere, hit him on the shoulder, hit the wall behind us and fell on the floor. <laughs> Little green crystal. We should get it somewhere in the house. And he said, there you go. There's your report. Just manifested out of nowhere. How does science explain that? <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah. Every session we had, because I think uh, Nicole was doing them monthly, there was an report. There was a little angel some angel, a silver angel thing that manifested on uh, one of the speakers. I think it was Karina, actually. She was speaking about her work. When she got home, it was sitting on her bed, just sitting there on the bed like it didn't belong to anybody. It didn't belong to her. It didn't belong to her children. There had been no one in the house. It was just sitting there on the bed. And then there was another piece of jewellery that manifested for the speaker that spoke the week before that or the month before that, just turned up. But it happens around Marcus. There's something about Marcus's energy that allows that to happen. I don't know what that is. Can science explain that? I think science can. And I think we will one day. But um, for now, it's a mystery. Magic, miracles and mysteries. 
it is fun like Kushik says it's nice to be in the mystery of it all the magic and the mystery of life thanks again for watching and remember to like and subscribe and share your comments and what you think you know tell me what you think where spirituality meets sides i'd like to know what my listeners think about that how you're marrying these two supposedly separate ideologies i think they're very connected very connected always connected and uh yes thanks again for listening and watching and remember to buy the book awakened by death and uh go to the higher self expo and sign up you actually don't even have to sign up it is available free to everybody we're not even asking for an email it'll be on youtube after it's live but it'll be around yeah, well not around but on the 17th 18th of july mid-july uh, on the weekend uh, 24 hour live expo with some amazing speakers from all over the world discussing this topic where science and spirituality meet it's very exciting big love to you all Mwah. bye for now <laughs>